on today's Compassion Radio. One thing that is unusual compared to the other groups that we have resettled historically is the timeline of their arrival in the United States. The average refugee that we resettle has been in a refugee camp setting for literally a decade or more. I mean, sometimes we're resettling children or adults who are born in a camp. I mean, we've resettled people who've been in camps for 20, 30, 40 years. We're going to focus on the issues facing a lot of immigration agencies and the immigrants they serve around the world. And the person to talk with us today about that, and we need to talk about it, is Matt Sorens. Now, Matt is a key guy at World Relief, an agency we've worked with many times and have traveled to see the work they do. We've talked about things here in the States. Matt Sorens, welcome to Compassion Radio. Yeah, great to be with you. You're here to talk about a couple of really important initiatives and the on-the-ground realities facing Afghan refugees coming here to the States. So let's start at the beginning. Your titles. You have a couple of important hats within the organization. Sure. Yeah, so I serve as the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. And that basically means I help us to focus on our mission of empowering local churches to serve the vulnerable. And in the U.S. context in particular, primarily that means serving refugees and other immigrants and keeping churches at the center of that work. And then I I also serve as the national coordinator for a group called the Evangelical Immigration Table. That's a a coalition that World Relief helped to start along with partners like the National Association of Evangelicals and the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And a number of years ago, really with, I'd say, a two-way focus. One is helping folks in local churches think in distinctly biblical ways about issues of immigration. And then at the same time, encouraging our elected officials to take into account biblical principles as they look at issues of, of refugee and immigration policy as well. And that's not just going to be a bumper sticker solution to problems. Um, tell me about the book, too, that you co-authored in the past few years that had a, a new edition released just a couple of years ago. Sure. So my colleague, Jenny Yang, who's our uh, Senior Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at World Relief, and I did a book called Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate uh, with University Press. And it's really been our effort to help Christians think in distinctly Christian biblical ways about this complicated issue of immigration that so often, you know, it's become sort of a political football and, uh, you know, people have economic and security concerns. We address some of those. First and foremost, we want to ground it in what does the Bible say and how does that inform how we might respond with compassion to vulnerable immigrants? Yeah, I think you're correct about it becoming a political football. For me, it's kind of descending into a rugby grudge death match with a lot of different camps. And that's true of the evangelical world as well. I hate to say it, but it seems like most of the anti-immigration sentiment is camping out in a certain wing of the evangelical denominations and the uh, political parties that seem to appeal to that particular viewpoint. And of course, this is not just a political issue, and we don't want to make it one. This is, as you say, a biblical and a Christian issue. I'm going to take you to task on those two terms. When you talk about biblical, there's a whole world out there that would say biblical has to do with finding black and white to proof text what you want to say about what's right and wrong from your perspective, rather than asking God to inform us across history what he wants. And there's another camp which says, no, we just need to follow Jesus in his footsteps. It's all about the red letters. Where does it fall for you? Immigration is actually a pretty significant theme throughout the Bible. And that was one thing that really struck me as I, you know, probably 15 years ago was really personally wrestling with. How do I be faithful to Jesus's commands and to the whole of scripture as I think about interacting with my immigrant neighbors and really started rereading the Bible looking for that. You know, for one thing, the, the Hebrew word for an immigrant, the, the word ger in the Old Testament, it appears 92 times in the Old Testament. This is actually a pretty frequent theme. 
God often speaks to the people of Israel about showing love and compassion for those who are vulnerable. And it's often the foreigner or, again, depending upon your English translation, the immigrant, the sojourner, the alien, the stranger, mentioned right alongside the orphan and the widow as groups of people who were uniquely vulnerable in that context. And I think you could argue are still uniquely vulnerable. Yeah. And whom God both loves himself and then commands his people to love. I mean, that's a pretty close paraphrase of Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19. God says, I love these people, so you shall love them. So if you just stuck with just the Pentateuch and dealt with the original laws and rules that governed a particular society, which was a Bedouin becomes a sojourner kind of culture, which was the Hebrews that eventually landed themselves and took centuries to overcome their own refugee or immigrant status. It's still part of a view of the world which is fairly ancient, and yet there are principles, we say, would be transcendent. Where do you fall as far as the issue of whether or not we can see the words in the Old Testament, especially as being literally mandating to us what our behavior or approach should be? Yeah, you know, I'm not arguing that every command that God gives to the people of Israel as part of their legal system should be taken and turned into U.S. law. But I do think that it tells us some things about God's character Mm -hmm. that are unchanging and that carry into the New Testament as well. And we see that in the New Testament. I mean, it's the frequent command in the New Testament to practice hospitality, Mm. which literally is to practice loving strangers, philozenia in the Greek. That's a countercultural command for American Christians in some ways, because... I want to camp on that thought. What does it really mean to be countercultural? If we're going to follow Jesus, are we talking looking back on the 60s and rebelling against the authority and having a whole different music and culture and just environment? Or is there something else you're talking about being countercultural? You know, I think when I say being countercultural, this is a generalization to be sure, but the culture I was raised in in the United States... When we grew up strangers, people who are unknown to us as a potential threat, you know, even mm-hmm. like I watched cartoons as a kid with public service announcements about stranger danger. Like we are, yeah. you teach our kids that strangers are scary people. Now I get why we send that message to children, of course, but I think even as adults, we sometimes carry that idea with us that strangers are a potential threat. And that doesn't just mean immigrants, but certainly could mean immigrants. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible promises that all strangers are safe. I don't see that in the scriptures, Mm -hmm. but we are commanded in in Romans 12 and elsewhere to practice hospitality, literally to practice loving strangers. And in Hebrews 13, it goes so far to say that some people, by welcoming strangers, have entertained angels without realizing it. Sometimes we think about hospitality as either as an industry, you know, hotels and restaurants, Mm -hmm. or maybe having our friends over for a nice meal or washing the sheets for our relatives when they come and stay in our guest room. Those are nice things to do. But actually, if hospitality is loving strangers, Hmm. enough to just love our friends and the people who are already known to us. Okay, so let's back up again about the word, which we translate as sojourner or stranger or refugee or immigrant. Is it an actual objective definition that God's after here, like defining a widow or an orphan? We have a parameter there to say, there are those things because this thing happened to them. Is it that objective or is it more about our perspective? Is that person seen as being a foreigner or strange or a refugee outside the camp by us? Does God see it the same way when we start? That word in the Old Testament for a foreigner or a stranger, an immigrant, scholars, you know, they debate these things, but they would say it, particularly the idea of a resident foreigner, someone who's come to reside in the land. Okay. But it's not going to translate perfectly to U.S. legal categories necessarily. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? They didn't have those categories in the exact same ways in the time that scripture was written. But again, I do think that there's some clear principles there. And one of the really remarkable things, and scholars have said this is unique in the law that God gave to the people of Israel, even compared to the societies around them, mm-hmm. was that God was concerned about the outsider. 
Yeah. When most countries are concerned about the insiders and outsiders are a potential threat if they're focused at all. Our command to love our neighbors is ourselves. Jesus underscores and says this is like the sum up command that captures everything else. That first occurs in Leviticus chapter 19. Okay. And then it's just a few verses later that God tells the people of Israel, when foreigners reside with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you shall be to you as your native born. You shall love them as yourselves, which was a really radical concept. Which is also right there in the Ten Commandments too, isn't it? Right. So from the very beginning, God has this heart for incorporating people in. That speaks to his character. That was a specific command for the people of Israel. But it has ramifications for all of us who are seeking to follow God and looking to emulate his character. And I think that that has some important lessons, again, to take it back to the work that we do at World Relief. We see that as an important function for the church, is how do we incorporate people in? How do we welcome people in? Some of them are already fellow believers. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of immigrants are fellow Christians. Others are not. Mm -hmm. uh, And yet we see this missional opportunity as well. When we welcome people, when we show them love as neighbors, which we're called to do regardless, often they're going to ask that question of, well, why do you love us so much? And we get to, as First Peter says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And we've seen people make the decision in the context of the United States where we are blessed with religious freedom, where people can choose you know, to follow God or not in, in the way they want to. We've seen people make that decision to become followers of Christ in this context. You made a pretty interesting designation there, or, or differentiation between the idea of evangelizing and as evangelicals, living a faith which is approachable. And because of our faith, we are compelled to do this thing, whether they respond to us or not. So in other words, these people are people, they're not projects. Right. And I, I've seen a lot of evangelicals kind of camp on the idea, if I didn't win them to Jesus, what was the point? There are plenty of people like you that work in this industry, which is a tough one, which say they're human beings for crying out loud. This is about humanity which is even bigger than your agenda or even your practice faith. It's about identifying with people the way God does. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of framing it. Friends, if prayer matters to God, it should matter to us. We're taking that to heart here at Compassion Radio, especially in what seems like very uncertain times. When we get up, we're praying for you. When we lay down at night, we're thanking God for you. Every time we think of you, we're asking God to provide above and beyond for you and your family so you'd know how much He loves you and cares for you. We're also praying for all those suffering and afraid in this world, not just for protection from physical harm, but from the disease of fear and hopelessness. We pray that this kingdom of which we are part will do its part to continue reaching people with the love of Christ and the certainty of His ability to do so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. I hope you'll pray and act with us for these things as well. Especially in times like this, I want to express my deep gratitude to you for allowing us to come to you each day with a word of challenge and comfort, truth and vision. As long as you stand with us and the Lord provides all of us the means to do so, We'll be right here each day, doing what God enables us to do in supporting you and our Christian family around the world. Again, thank you. It's our strong desire to be going deeper, to go farther, to be braver than we've ever been, and to bring you the stories that you just won't hear anywhere else. Friends, I simply ask that you would keep giving so that we can give back to the world through our strategic ministry partners and to you with inspiring programming on this radio station and over the internet. Here's how. 
The first and best way to reach us is through our website. It's available 24-7. Our safe and secure order form there will get your gift to the places needed most and we'll do it right away. You can also support us with a call during Pacific Time Business Hours at 1-800-868-2478. That's 1-800-868-2478. You can also text COMPASSION to 53445 to give right through your phone no matter where you are. Of course, you can also put a stamp on an envelope and mail your gift to our Compassion Radio office, P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. Again, that's P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. However you give, we'd love to hear more about why you believe in Compassion Radio. We so much value your messages and letters. And know this, your gift is deeply appreciated. Thank you for loving us in this way. These people are people, they're not projects. Right. And I, I've seen a lot of evangelicals kind of camp on the idea, if I didn't win them to Jesus, what was the point? There are plenty of people like you that work in this industry, which is a tough one, which say they're human beings for crying out loud. This is about humanity, which is even bigger than your agenda or even your practice faith. It's about identifying with people the way God does. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of framing it. I mean, ultimately, as Christians, we believe that all human beings are made in the image of God with inherent dignity. And that gives us, you know, a strong rationale to want to do whatever we can to protect human life, including those fleeing persecution, which is sort of the definition of a a refugee. But also, we have the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. It's a passion for us, but we also have the Great Commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And that means we love people regardless of whether or not they would ever share our faith. When we do so well, we find that they're much more likely to ask those questions and consider faith in Jesus. And we celebrate that. So we don't force that on anyone. We make a pretty clear distinction between evangelism, which is an open invitation to a relationship with Christ, and proselytism, which is sort of a pressure sales pitch or trying to, you know, coerce someone. Conditional conformity kind of things. Now, when Paul talks about be ready to give an account, we use that phrase so often in apologetics, which is saying, prepare your argument in advance. And I don't think Paul's saying that to Timothy at all. He's saying exactly what you're saying. Be ready. If someone approaches you, If God has made divine appointment possible, just be ready to answer the questions. Be present. Don't just have a whole list of things i got to cover that you've got to accept, and therefore you're the object, I'm the subject. It is about relationship. I'm convinced of that. And you have relationships you build with refugees when they arrive in America. That's just a touch. You get to be one of the gatekeepers, the first people they see, that they connect with. And it's an incredibly important role to have. But you also turn them loose to others very quickly. And you don't get to build long-term relationships so much with all the people you serve. What's it like being a gatekeeper if somebody actually has to figure out what to do next when the government says, okay, guy, you got this bunch of people. Go do something with them. Sure. You know, that's part of the reason we're so passionate at World Relief about not just being a refugee resettlement agency who completes a contract with the U.S. government to help people through their first 90 days, but about our mission of empowering the local church. One of the things that we try to do is to have what we call good neighbor teams. So it's a team from a local church. Sometimes it's a pre-existing small group, you know, maybe 10, 15 people who will commit to walking alongside a new family who has arrived in the United States for a longer term. We usually ask them for a six-month commitment because we can't really ask for a lifelong commitment. Mm -hmm. But our not-so-secret hope is that this actually goes on well beyond that six months as just a reciprocal friendship. As a refugee family arrives, there's a lot of needs up front. They need housing. They need, you know, clothing. They need all the basic things that anyone would need if they were sort of dropped into a new country. 
time goes by, they usually become economically self-sufficient fairly quickly. I mean, people are very eager to work. They find jobs. Right now, it's not hard to find jobs. Um, They are covering their own rent. But what they will need on an ongoing basis is what all of us need, which is friends. And that's a a key role that we've seen for decades now. World Relief has been doing this since the 70s. We've seen the role of the local church as being that relational connection and helping people integrate into a new community. Obviously, there's usually a new language to learn. Mm -hmm. There are cultural dynamics to navigate and to understand. But we do find it's very often mutually transformative, not only for that family that's arrived, but also for the team from a local church that is welcoming them. We've seen that in our own family because my daughter was one of those kind of volunteers and built a relationship beyond just the expectations of the responsibility. And so that family are now friends. and. The opportunity to help walk them through things that are not covered in the original introduction book. For example, the father of this family just got his first jury summons. And his English is not strong yet, but he's incredibly productive and working hard and working, you know, full overtime kind of work weeks. And she looked at that and said, this is probably not the best thing for the court system or for you right now. Let me see if I can reach out to somebody. So she stepped right back into that mode of saying... Being a problem solver or a bridge between this and that. And she's working on that this week, which is great. And we had a chance to actually sit down and have a meal with the family, get to know the kids, the ones that were born in Afghanistan, the ones that were born here in America, and just learn to love them because you couldn't not love them after spending 15 minutes with them and having dinner. Yeah, that's so powerful and exactly the sort of thing we see happening in various parts of the United States and, you know, with with refugees from all sorts of different countries Mm -hmm. and, and immigrants from various contexts. It's such a unique opportunity for the church in the United States that we see a lot of churches stepping up to, and we're excited by that. And yet we also think the opportunity is actually significantly beyond what we're seeing right now. If, yeah. Because as you said, this has become such a controversial issue. You know, people can debate the policy questions, and I'm happy to help people think through those from my perspective. But what in my mind is less controversial is if someone's going to arrive at the airport, we want a team from a local church to welcome them mm-hmm. and to friend them and show them kindness. You know, that's the bulk of what we do at World Relief that ministry of connecting people to a community in the United States. We found over the past maybe 30 or 40 years of our ministry, having started as a teaching and spiritual development ministry, merging into more of an activist, let's get the hands and feet of Jesus trained to do the things he wants us to do anyway, and go those places that we stumbled into as they described us in Nepal and China as the ministry of showing up. And just being able to go there and be able to give an account of the story that's unfolding with God's people where they are, and helping them when they end up in our shores, because there's so many of these sure. countries we visited, which do have refugees that have come here. That moniker is stuck with us. We get to go and actually show up. You show up at the airport, you show up in the boardrooms, you show up in the government meetings and things to find ways to actually live out this mandate that God's given all of God's people since ancient times. What's it like for you right now? I know that Afghanistan is a big issue in the media, but I'm here and there's a lot more of those immigrants finally coming here because America at least has a general consensus that we have a responsibility. We owe them something as a people for messing a lot of things up in their country. We can at least do this right. So what are you doing right now? In the last week, we've started to have very large numbers of Afghans arriving. So they they reached the United States several weeks ago, Mm -hmm. about 50,000 or so who were evacuated out of Kabul. Um, and I should say, that's not everyone who's vulnerable in Afghanistan by any means. And no. we're still really concerned for people who haven't been able to make it out. But 50,000 or so Afghans did. Many of these are people who served the U.S. military, other parts of the U.S. government. And for that reason, were particularly at risk. Mm-hmm. They were initially brought to third country, usually U.S. military sites. They undergo vetting there. And then once they complete their security process, they're brought to the U.S. Okay, hold there, because that question gets asked a lot. 
What is yeah. that vetting process and how do we know that they are safe? Yeah, that's a fair question. And, you know, it's an important role of the government to do their due diligence in carefully vetting everyone who comes to the U.S. The good news is, frankly, our government's done a great job of that vetting process for the refugee process in particular. There's been 3 million refugees resettled to the United States since the Refugee Act was signed into law in 1980. Mm. And not a single American life has been taken in a terrorist attack perpetrated by someone who came through the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. So every terrorist act that has happened have been to people who are impersonating something else. They're here under false pretenses. They weren't resettled by the United States government, so they may have come in on a temporary visa like the 9-11 terrorists. Or, I mean, a lot of terrorism, frankly, is committed by U.S. citizens yeah. as well. And that's, I think, important to know. It's, it's not just an issue of people from outside. It's an issue yeah. of radicalization on the Internet very often. But those who come through the refugee program, and that's not to say nothing bad could ever happen. I can't make that commitment. But it is to say, I think our government has actually done a great job here and deserves some credit in bringing the right people and not bringing the wrong people. Yeah. Um, again, that's not to say they're perfect people either. They're human beings, both made in the image of God and also sinners like the rest of us. But what we've found is our government has done a good job of vetting people. I worry sometimes that as the church, we've so focused on the question of, is this safe? And mm -hmm. frankly, not looking very hard for the answers to that question, that we've forgotten to ask the question that was asked of Jesus, which is, who's my neighbor? Yeah. And if this is our neighbor, then we should be the people there to meet them at the airport. So that, that's what we're doing now. People with the Afghans in particular, um, many of them are being admitted with a kind of a special parole status because of the unique situation of the evacuation. After clearing their security vetting overseas, they were brought to military bases in the U.S., most of them have been there for six weeks or more. Basically, it's been health checks and vaccinations and making people are all ready on a public health level with mm -hmm. obviously with COVID and everything going on. And now they're beginning to be resettled to communities around the United States. So World Relief alone, we're expecting as many as 10,000 Afghans in the next three months, which is actually more people than we've resettled in the last three years. So wow. it's a really significant undertaking. I'm glad the public will is there to help you with that. Yeah. In fact, we were having dinner with this Afghan family, and they asked the question of my daughter, who was their liaison and now their friend. They didn't know what the term humanitarian parole meant, because they had heard that from some other sources that people who are coming were, might be released under this. They had not been under that program. So yeah. she was able to explain that a little bit to them, as even as refugees. So why don't you explain a little bit about the difference between traditional immigration or other forms we've done in the past, say, 10 or 20 years, and what this humanitarian parole means now. Sure. Well, so a refugee, just to kind of go back a step, a refugee legally under the U.S. law is someone who's fled a credible fear of persecution mm -hmm. on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Historically, the United States resettles varied year to year, and it's gone down in the last few years, but usually about 75,000 refugees a year in you know, the last couple of decades. The one challenge with the refugee resettlement process is it tends to take quite a long time. Uh, yeah. a year or longer, just to get through kind of the bureaucracy for the small share of the world's refugees who were even considered for a settlement to the U.S. Because of the unique situation in Afghanistan, where people needed to get out quickly, and again, often these are people who were serving the U.S. government and the military or some yeah. other part of the U.S. government, there was an urgent need to get them out. And there wasn't a safe long-term place for them to wait mm -hmm. outside for a year-plus-long refugee settlement process. So the U.S. government, the executive branch of the government, has the authority under law to parole people into the country, which I hate that term because it sounds yeah. like people are leaving jail or something, but it's the language of our immigration laws. Already convicted or something. Yeah. It basically is a way to bring people in a little bit more quickly. They still go through thorough security vetting processes, but it's a little bit less bureaucratic. In the United States, they're authorized to work. They're lawfully present in the United States. 
Although I would say one concern we have at World Relief is their legal status is it's got an expiration on it. It's good for two years and then they'll be able to renew that, yeah. presumably, although politics can change and someone might decide they don't want to let them renew that, which is a concern to us. We would really like for them to have the confidence that they belong here because unfortunately they're not going back to Afghanistan. The Taliban yeah. is not going away in the short term. We want them to know that they belong in the United States. This is now their home. And the way to convey that at a legislative level is some sort of a process by which people could apply for permanent legal status, which is usually the case for refugees. And we've been advocating for that. And usually they do end up in that process, whether it's a green card, as we would think about it for people south of our border or other kinds of visas that have certain kinds of numbers and letter designations that we don't memorize here, but they have significance. It's like the people going into the Schengen zone in, in Europe versus having refugee status offshore. There's a big difference in what you can or cannot do with that. Now, when parole is offered, there's also a legal expectation that they will present themselves on demand, correct? Yeah. I mean, they're lawfully present, but they still need to re- to renew that status on a regular interval. Right. So different than just saying you have a permit to go wherever you want. You actually do, if they call you, say, I am here and make an account for yourself. So there is an added layer of accountability, it seems to me, in a parole situation than just releasing people without any controls at all. So for those who are more concerned about the safety issues, it does seem like the parole system is one that we at least understand what it does. It makes sure we keep track of people as best we can and don't just let them go without any oversight at all. Matt Sorens of World Relief will be back with us tomorrow to finish our conversation on the challenge and opportunity presented by the current emergency refugee resettlement brought on by the end of the war in Afghanistan. There really is a lot of good news in the story, and I hope you'll join us for that on tomorrow's broadcast. To hear our podcast and to make your love gift, simply go to our website, CompassionRadio.com. Our toll-free number is 1-800-868-2478. You can also write us and send your gift by mail to Compassion Radio, P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. I'm Bram Floria. God bless you, friends.